0: i uh-huh. uh-huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing The Apprentices from Beasts of Burden, a comic book series created by Evan Dorkin and Jill Thompson. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest, John Dorowski. Welcome back, John. Hello. And Beasts of Burden is about a pack of dogs and a cat that protect their town Burden Hill from Paranormal Threats. Evan Dorkin is the co-creator and writer of the series, uh, with Mike Mignola and Sarah Dreyer having co-authored some of the stories with him. Jill Thompson has done art on all of the earlier stories with Benjamin Dewey, providing art for 10 more recent issues. And uh, this is a series that I learned about because you recommended it to me, John. And I read the first volume of a collected edition I don't know, maybe three or four years ago. And it's always been kind of like, oh, you know, when it gets to be fall and we're doing Halloween type uh, episodes, that'd be a good comic book to cover in October. And I'm finally getting around to it. So thank you, John, for introducing me to the series and joining me for this discussion. Certainly. How did you first discover Beasts of Burden? Uh, Probably
1: when the first miniseries was published, which was a few years after the stories began. And it was getting press and starting to get awards. Um, I became aware of it. And I picked up the first collection. And when you said you want to do this, I was like, okay, let me go pick up uh, some of the other collections to see what stories will work best to
0: discuss. Mm -hmm. Um, So the cast characters that we have in here uh, is uh, Ace a husky who was bitten by a werewolf? Jack a beagle who is sensitive to the paranormal. Pugsley or Pugs a cynical pug. Uh, Rex a cowardly doberman. Whitey a jack uh, a jack russell terrier. The orphan a stray tabby cat and the first cat to become part of the society, which is what they call their their group of apprentices who are apprenticed to what is the uh, the group that guides them? The the wise dogs. The wise dogs uh, is well, kind. Of,
1: that's <laughs> really the society guides them, but the members of the society are the wise dogs
0: yeah, and their apprentices to eventually join the society. Mm-hmm. And we also have Dimphna, a black cat and former witches familiar, which is a term for like the animals that bond with some supernatural uh, super, uh, natural beings, right? The uh, yeah. particularly witches tend to be. Associated with familiars, but I think other like the term has been adopted in other fantasy fiction at this point.
1: Yes, it's usually uh cats as witches' familiars, but yeah, once you start getting into pop culture, it becomes any animal that mm-hmm. serves someone with supernatural powers.
0: Yeah, and I think uh I mean the, the, we'll get to the trivia and the, the summary. I I do appreciate at this point, I think maybe more than any point in my life. A series that is built on a pun. <laughs> that... Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, he's, you Evan ahead. Dorkin
1: said uh, he struggled to come up with the title. Uh, and they went through a few and settled on Beasts of Burden, which he wasn't entirely happy with, but it works because they named the city then
0: Burden Hill. So it's the Beasts of Burden Hill. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you, you can see the um, method that lands on this where it's like, OK, uh, a series about some animals. OK, you know, our, all our main characters are going to be animals. Beasts of Burden. OK, well, that sort of works. But if they're protecting Burden Hill <laughs> and they're yeah. from Burden Hill, then it then it really works. So uh, I do yes. respect So it's kind that.
1: of like they arrived at the pun and then had to figure out what the pun meant.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> where it's not not so obvious. This is clear that the the name of the city came after they had settled on the title Beasts of Burden. So the first appearance of these characters, which are presented as like talking dogs and cats, but otherwise, I, I mean, uh, so like they, they, they don't walk on hind legs. They're not like Mickey Mouse and Goofy, right? Not,
1: they are. They're not anthropomorphized pets. physically. Yes. And for the most part, they just talk to each other. They're not mm-hmm. talking to humans most of the time. Right.
0: And right. so they, the uh, Jill Thompson's she does watercolor, right? Is that the art style that I'm seeing? Yes, in the- it's watercolor really beautiful watercolor of which uh
1: i don't oh, understand how that works um <laughs> the most watercolor I did was you know those uh paint scents as a kid and it just, uh, and all the colors just bleed together
0: on paper yeah i, and, I think we're probably dealing with some higher quality paper yeah. and but uh how, how, training
1: Just <laughs> how you get detail and differentiation at all in watercolor i do not know
0: yeah um but they so so the I was just gonna say they, like the art, it is like a, a group of dogs that you might see in, uh, you know, like people's pets uh, walking around, but then with word balloons above them, and they're talking about all these supernatural things <laughs> that, that are going on. So the first appearance of these animal heroes was in a group of anthologies that Dark Horse Comics published. The first was um, the Dark Horse Book of Hauntings in 2003. The next was the Dark Horse Book of Witchcraft then the Book of the Dead and the Book of Monsters. And in each one of those, there was um, these were anthologies with lots of short stories, and one of them would be about Beasts of Burden. Um, and for listeners who aren't familiar, Dark Horse is um, a smaller comic book publisher that has actually endured for quite a while i think longer than most people expected and they've had kind of different identities at different points um as to as to what they're doing but they have found business models that have allowed them to survive in the marketplace that is thoroughly dominated by marvel and dc and um, for the listeners of the
1: show they are the publishers of hellboy and usagi
0: yojimbo yes at this point though it, they have not always been the publishers of those two <laughs> Uh, I think I Hellboy most of the time. I
1: think Hellboy but, has been entirely at Dark
0: Horse. Yeah, after it was, like, started out independent. But once it found a publisher, it was Dark Horse. But I think Usagi no? Jojimbo jo- no. has bounced around a little.
1: Uh, Usagi bounced around. Hellboy was just at Dark Horse. Uh, uh, Dark I, well, Horse I'm just, i am just
0: saying he had his Baltimore Comic-Con uh, indie. <laughs> his sketch. Yes, he yes. had a sketch published <laughs> before. Uh, was it just a sketch? A oh, I thought it was a story. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Sorry. <laughs> um... And the Dark Horse often licenses properties, um, like existing media properties, um, is is been their model for a while, um, and that that can come and go, but, um, it's it's been surprising. They're they're probably nearing their forty year anniversary, right? Oh uh, yeah, I think they started in the eighties. Yeah. So, um, but writer Evan Dorkin says that the first seed of the idea came when he was asked to contribute to the Dark Horse Book of Hauntings, and he seized on the idea of a haunted doghouse, and out of that. <laughs> that idea of saying okay i want to do a haunted house story but a haunted dog house story eventually came uh beasts of burden after short stories uh, uh, those short stories that appeared in those anthologies dark horse published a four issue miniseries in 2009 then they appeared in a crossover issue with hellboy in 2011 then more short stories appeared in an anthology series called dark horse presents from 2011 and 2012 a couple more single issue stories were released over the next several years and another miniseries was published a few years ago so it's kind of like it's not. It is consistent, but not like monthly, right? Like something is often Uh, happening.
1: Yeah, every few years something comes out. And Mm -hmm. um, when we get to the summary, it's obvious that there's at least one more volume planned. Right. uh, If not more.
0: Yeah, and it it does a mix of like uh, completely episodic stories, but also a like larger background threat. Uh, So they're, you know, they, they, they deal with the issue of the week or you know the monster of the week in the in the in the Buffy verse <laughs> lingo there's the monster of the week but then there's the monster of the season that's lurking in the background uh and and would be building towards and it, I, I think thus far we've mostly been seeing the monsters of the week but know that there's something else out there. Um the series has won eight Eisner Awards. Though all those stories so far uh, that have been released have been collected into four hardcover collections. Um in 2013 an animated film was announced but it never moved beyond pre production. In a recent interview, uh, Dorkin says that he could not even get past the first three pages or 10 pages of the script because it was so bad. And he has no qualms that that film adaptation never moved forward. And no new adaptations have been announced yet. And um, I found a quote from Evan Dorkin where he was asked, um, like, looking back, uh, you know, the, the first issue was published in 2003. So now looking back almost 20 years later. Um this this I think this interview is from this year. He asked if there's anything he changed. And he said if Jill and I knew we were, uh, we were going to continue past the first short story, I would have done several things differently script wise. First, I wouldn't have included one panel where Jack the Beagle is shown being able to understand human speech. We retconned that immediately with the second story so that ordinary animals uh, can only understand one another and not humans. Secondly, I would not have written a group of all-male animals, even though the cast has expanded and there are more female characters in the series. That bothers me to this day. And I also would not have named one of the dogs Whitey. I purposely gave the animals stereotypical pet names to go with the storybook feel of the comic, but I wish I did not go with that one for our little Jack Russell Terrier um okay so that's the trivia i have about this do you have anything to add john uh nope Okay. Well, before we move on to the summary of the stories that we'll be talking about, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick cats, which are shorter episodes, in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming, that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. All right, John, you, uh, you wrote up the summary of Beasts of Bur- Burden, so I will turn it over to you. All
1: right. So at the end of the first volume of stories, uh, the dogs and the cat orphan became junior apprentices in the society, and so we're just at the point now where they are apprentices. And I'm going to run through several story- short stories here. So in Sacrifice, Hellboy kills a vampire on an Amish farm when an unknown dog pour- pulls him towards the forest. I don't know if I'd go into those woods if I were you. Folks say strange things happen in there. The Amish
0: farmer says to the large red demon. <laughs> I like, uh, I like how stories that just start in media arrest yes. Like just we're here. <laughs> Something's and been going on. He's there.
1: I, I can just imagine that uh, since Nola helped write this, that he just had the idea of, I always wanted to put Hellboy on an Amish farm. <laughs> this seems like the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. And so in the forest, Hellboy meets uh, the apprentices uh, and great introduction. They explain who they are, and then there's a silent panel. And then, in Hel- the next panel, Hellboy just goes, Okay, got it.
0: Hellboy has seen weirder than a bunch <laughs> yeah. of uh, a pack of dogs and one cat that fight supernatural threats. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, the apprentices lead him to an old railway, railway tunnel. Pugs is being extra cynical today because his owner's got a new puppy. While investigating, they are attacked by skull golems. Uh, These um, beings of mud and bone who kidnap Whitey. They follow and meet Cheryl, who is trying to resurrect Carl. Carl, having been resurrected and defeated in the previous volume. (laughs) They escape the tunnels when Carl, as a skull golem, attacks, but is quickly defeated. It turns out that Pugs had interrupted the spell by peeing on it. (laughs) And the dog who led Hellboy to the forest? A member of the society who had recently passed away. Food run. Orphan and Rex ambush a goblin who has been stealing chickens. During the chase, Rex's abusive owner arrives to force Rex home. The goblin escapes, though its family has to dine on mushrooms. Story time.
0: <laughs> oh. I, I want to say, like, food run, it was a, a good, like, probably a 15-page story. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly long for what that story is. Yeah, and then in the end it's just a twist that, uh, you know, the goblin was just trying to get food for its family. <laughs> yes. Uh, so story time. Emerus,
1: a wise dog, tells a group of puppies the story of Pitten and the warrior Auric, who in medieval times undertook a quest to defeat the nine great wrongs. After defeating those nine great wrongs on their way home, they find a village being terrorized by a wizard and his basilisk. Bitten fight, fights the basilisk blindfolded and wins, but uh, as the basilisk dies, it tears off the blindfold and turns Bitten to stone. Alruk takes Bitten's body home, and this is said to be where the tradition of placing animal statues on lawns began. But Emrys warns that basquets are still around, so that the puppies won't follow the other dogs on patrol. The View from the Hill The group find a herd of sheep and their guard dog wandering the hills. The sight of them causes Jack, who is sensitive to the supernatural, to faint. The sheep explain that they are ghosts, having died in a fire but are content to roam instead of passing on because there's no mention in their beliefs of all animals going to the same heaven and they would rather stay with their God guard dog. This is one of my favorite ones. Yeah. And it is then shown that Jack fainted because he saw them as burned sheep. Mm -hmm. That
0: was a haunting last image.
1: Yeah. That's a haunting story. (laughs) Yeah. Hunters and gatherers. The group defeat a wind slither, a giant lizard, Crows steal its third eye, which Difna explains has rare, is a rare magical object. The crows present the eye to the rats and their master with chants about the rat kingdom and the kingdom of crows. And this is the big background story of uh, the rats and the crows as a threat and who their master is.
0: Yeah, the, the rats and the, the dogs and the cat don't get along. What the cat
1: dragged in. Orphan, with the assistance of a raccoon. Help Difna enter the home of her old coven. Difna explains that she once wanted revenge on the dogs for defeating her coven, had and had even tried to summon a demon. She thought she had failed, but the demon now waits for them, having spent the ensuing time torturing the remaining familiars. Difna offers to perform a blood oath if the demon will not hurt her friends, but she uses the raccoon's blood instead of her own, thus tricking the demon and sending it back to where it came from. Once outside, Two of the familiar cats turn to skeletons as they say, goodbye, mother. The presence of others. Sabina, Russ, and their dad, who are humans and supernatural investigators, have come to Burden Hill to investigate all the recent strange occurrences. Sabina and the dad are able to talk to the animals, who explain what has been going on. Sabina, Russ, and the gang are called away by the local strays while the dad, Rex, and Jack check out a mausoleum. When he opens the mausoleum, vines drag the dad inside. The others are attacked by a giant rat bearing the winds of their eye. Jack brings the dad's gun and Sabine shoots the rat. They go back to the mausoleum to find the dad possessed until Russ tases him. The dad wakes up the next day and declares they are going to leave town. As they head to the car, they are attacked by a murder of crows. Diffinan uses her flame spell to drive them away. The dad then draws his gun, saying he's going to be taking Jack with them. as a dog that can see spirits would help him pay off their debts. He shoots Ace and drives off with Jack and the kids. But he didn't use silver bullets, and a werewolf rage takes over the bloodied Ace, who chases down the car and jumps through its windshield. Jack asks Ace to stop, and Ace warns the dad never to come back. Even though they leave, Sabina still dreams about Burton Hill, that the graveyard lived and breathed and brought death to any who stood in its way. I'm afraid for Burton Hill, she says, afraid for those poor animals.
0: The end. Thank you for writing up the summary. Um, I think there's a good range of stories that we get in here. Some of them are almost like uh, Twilight Zones with just a little twist at the end, some are building the bigger mythology, some uh have, you know, um like some of the family bonds are at play uh w- within these stories and and so it it shows a pretty good range. Um yeah. ac- across the a sequence of just uh really pretty quick reads reads. I th- I think I don't think any of these took more than 10 minutes to read. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, most of
1: the larger stories are like two issues instead mm-hmm. of one. Right. So the, like the stories themselves are
0: not long. Uh, but, and I think several of these are coming from those anthologies where they wouldn't even be traditional full issue length. Right. Yeah. And
1: part of what I liked about uh, this was each story gets to feature different characters. So you get to get a sense of the whole cast.
0: Mm hmm. Yes. Yeah. And th- um, I, I think it's possible when we're talking about, uh, you know, groups of animals for there's just kind of be a sameness, but I think they do a good job of distinguishing um, what the personality of each one of these is.
1: Yeah. Although I will admit I do have trouble distinct visually distinguishing
0: Whitey and Jack. Yes. Um, yeah. Those two uh, definitely uh, I, in the group shots. I'm not, I don't know which one's which <laughs> Yeah, they're just small
1: dogs with white, black and brown fur, uh-huh. So I like I know there are different breeds of dogs, but uh, they can be uh, for me a little hard to distinguish. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I, I I agree with that. Um, did you have a favorite one of these stories?
1: Um, I really liked A View from the Hill. That's my favorite. And then um, What the Cat Dragged In.
0: OK, I, I like The View from the Hill that, as well. That was my favorite of all the ones I read today. And it's the one that has no connection to the larger mythology of what's going on in terms of like the, the threat that's looming over it and actually doesn't even have an antagonist that they have to overcome. Right. No. There's, there really isn't um, much here other than the twist at the end that the sheep are all dead. Yeah. So it's not part of the larger
1: ongoing story, but it does fill out the um, mythology of
0: the animals. Right. Was- that they that the. Essentially like the sheep have this idea of the afterlife. Um yep. and that's why they're not willing to go on, is because they, they have their friend, the their the sheepdog that died trying to save them. Uh that the the sheepdog hasn't realized that it's dead, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's uh but then we also get a little bit added in that um Jack is the one that can see that not just that the like all the animal, all the dogs see the ghosts. Right, but for the the reader and all the other animals, they just look like sheep and a dog. But Jack has fainted, and we see the point of view of Jack in the in. uh, I think it's a half page spread, not a full page spread, at the end of of these burned sheep corpses standing in a field, uh, rather than like the woolly sheep that that we anticipate. And I'm trying to think of why 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 this one just works so well for me. Um, I enjoyed them all. So I'm not trying to say like the others are lesser, but something about that twist. And I think maybe it's the, the arresting visual that we get at the end um, is just going to make that linger with me. It definitely grabbed me more uh, than the others because of that. But as far as the story itself, I'm trying to put my finger on what it is exactly that I liked about this.
1: Well, I've been thinking about this because um, I do a lot of research about horror and the Gothic and this, kind of negative aesthetic where it's a lot of uh these emotions of horror terror revulsion paranoia and reading this and what the cat dragged in uh made me think about how grief and sorrow are a negative aesthetic but we don't categorize it the same way mm-hmm. and i think you know this one is kind of is a, a, a view from the hill is about sorrow of um yes we've died but if we moved on we would lose this connection so we choose not to and um you know that's still a negative aesthetic but we don't categorize that the same way we do horror uh in mm-hmm. the same terms but it's still in the story like it is
0: uh still elements of horror in there right yeah there there's the visual horror that that we get um there's you know the, the shocking revelation of what jack saw but there's also like the idea because we do get a panel of the barn on fire and the sheepdog trying to rescue them uh and like that tension uh you know that would exist there and when you say it, like it's about sorrow it's about I, I feel like for the sheep it's about like this this future sorrow of the unknown right um the future sorrow of being separated. Yes. Uh, well, but, well they, meaning they, they don't
1: know. Yeah, they don't know that they will be able to see each other if they move on. And so, and the, and the fear a, a of thing. the exactly. sorrow of
0: separation from from the sheepdog. Exactly.
1: They have a fear of moving on.
0: And uh, yeah, it's and it's like presented as though they like they have a choice of just just move on if if they want, but not knowing if they'd be with their friend who died trying to save them is enough to keep them wandering. Uh and, and they say like we like our life. We like our existence. We can feel the breeze. We can smell the grass. Like this is, this is fine. <laughs> so. Yeah. Like this is enough of heaven for us. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. No, I, li- I like that idea uh, that, that you, you kind of helped maybe to solidify uh, that there's, there is a um, kind of a, a mournfulness and a sorrow and a fear mm-hmm. that's all bundled together in this, as well as the horror. Yeah. And well, horror is often so
1: visceral, um it's about the shock of well like turn the page and you see the uh burn sheep that's a shock Mm -hmm. um that gives you horror and here it's much more the meditative feel of um you know what's our theology how is that affecting us um and yeah like some you know theology isn't always about making you feel good sometimes it's making you feel afraid and Mm -hmm. for them they're afraid of
0: what the future might hold if they move on. And I think the the shock or just how um visually arresting that that page turn is part of it comes because the tone has not been building suspense. So like there's mm-hmm. other reveals of demons or like the dad gets into the the crypt and all the tentacles lurch out it's like well we knew something was going to be coming. <laughs> like the suspense I think actually uh, like suspense in and of itself can be a really palpable element of storytelling that you feel building. And then a lot of times when you see the creatures in suspense films or or there's the jump scare, like a lot of times it, it doesn't hold up. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. well, I, uh, The film Cloverfield
1: mm-hmm. uh, was very effective about hiding the monster. Yeah. Uh, and like all these horrible things are happening. And then at the end you see the monster. And I remember watching the theater and the monster comes up. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of cute. <laughs>
0: Or even uh, like um, M. Night Shyamalan signs. Like it's Mm kind of like, eh, like when I was just getting glimpses of these aliens, way creepier than when I saw it holding the child in the room. Uh, Or um, what was, uh, not so much that it was like a disappointment, but um, a quiet place. Like, the alien design like it just is starting to feel a little generic to have like lizardy aliens Yeah. uh and it's also a little generic i think to have tentacly demons like we, we i've seen it so much it's not shocking to see that and all the times the suspense building is like you know something bad is going to come out when he opens the door to the crypt <laughs> you know and, it, and it's about like uh okay okay and then this one i had no idea there was going to be the reveal about what jack saw as i turned the page like yeah. uh, the pacing of the story had not prepared me for that shock and it actually made it more more powerful than the slow burn suspense build uh yeah, horror yeah. that i'm u- more used to because it's unexpected yeah uh. and i think again like i love suspense when it's being built up so well that you know that feeling that is being evoked is the purpose for some of the scenes that are building towards suspense in a well-told story um but but it was just such a different response to ha- to turn the page and see it and be like oh okay that's what's going on I I didn't <laughs> I did not know <laughs> yeah. this was going on and so it's, it's um I'm not trying to say like one is better than the other I just noted that I had a different reaction to this one yeah uh, any other st- stories that stood out for you
1: uh, like I said I really like the um about the tracked and mostly for that end where it again becomes like a meditation on grief where we find out the cats that we're in the house being tortured are deafness children and then it's uh once we've realized that they're just like all work together silently bury those bones and then the raccoon goes back to its mother uh and like there's those moments
0: and the mom is uh, singing like a protective lullaby
1: yeah and so there's moments of tenderness uh and all the all this horror that's going on are, are really resonate as well.
0: Yeah, it it's um a good counterpoint and I, at this point I think um the uh the, like the use of lullabies in horror is almost become a trope like it's now almost a, gen- a genre trope, right? to have children giving some chant. Uh you know that that is revealing something and the end of this one goes to that lullaby well in horror and lifts it up but it is not in a way to do anything that is creepy it is a counterpoint to the grief that the mother the the other mother is feeling yeah it's not meant to unnerve
1: you as that slowed down uh um, nursery rhyme singing often does here it is actually meant to do what nursery rhymes and the uh, lullabies are meant to do which is put you at ease
0: Uh uh-huh yeah and uh I think that almost becomes like, I don't know for sure, but it feels like a reaction to some of the use of uh, those nursery rhymes in in horror films to, to see it in this completely other setting, but still in a horror, in a horror story again, just got like, gives me a nice new reaction uh, to it of, Oh, okay. I wasn't quite expecting that.
1: (laughs) Do you remember a few years ago when there was a town in England that, just have these creepy nursery rhymes being sung, and no one knew where they where they were
0: coming from. I don't remember that I remember the the clowns that were appearing around uh <laughs> a oh, couple of years ago. Well, you should look up the story about the uh uh town. It
1: turned out to be like an alarm system at a yeah. nearby security place that I don't know why they were choosing nursery rhymes for that, but yeah. it was just you know every once in a while these nursery rhymes started being sung throughout town, and no one could figure out where they were coming from
0: oh okay well i'll have to look into that story when i don't want to sleep at night (laughs) (laughs) um okay uh i i will just say the presence of the others this is the story uh the last one that you had summarized um my favorite beat that happened in this it was a little bit like the um hellboy beat where um, there there's people that are basically like the is it the Winchesters that are in Supernatural? Like they're just basically yes. the professional demon hunters yep. that are seem to be wandering from city to city. They come to Burden Hill and they realize they can communicate with the animals and it's just fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, of course. <laughs> and, and like there's no like, oh, you can talk or oh, you're doing you, you know, you're fighting Supernatural. It's like, OK, you, you're you're here. Um uh And, and so I loved that beat. Um, and I did like the way that this one made me want to see the resolution of the larger story. Yeah. Um, and, and so really good world building, uh, that was taking place. Um, and I love world building where the revelation that something is mundane is eye opening <laughs> to, to, to the audience. Uh, and so for these, uh, supernatural investigators, um, encountering uh, the dogs that are part of, you know, that are apprentices. It's like, okay, (laughs) and and we're going to move on. And that says something about the world of uh, people who who investigate the supernatural here. Uh, And and so it does act as world building, even though it's not like explaining everything to us. It it just says something about the uh, like the 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 tapestry of of what is acceptable here.
1: Yeah, exactly. That that contract with the reader that you have to set up of what exactly where was the story world and so this is yes there are people who have supernatural powers too uh and they, at the very end of the story they talk about oh these other paranormal investigators came to town but they're all frauds
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and then they show you like essentially like um uh, like like History Channel ghost hunters kind of TV yeah. show set up a van in the background, and they mentioned like the the YouTube, uh, <laughs> um influencers kind of ghost hunters that are just trying to you know go viral for looking here, you know, for poking around here. Yeah, so they don't find anything. Mm-hmm. When we know, like the supernatural is just dripping off of Burden Hill. Yes. Um. Okay, so I think that's most of the stories that I I want to touch on. Are there any of the the characters that stand well, I, out for
1: I, since this is the protagonist podcast, I thought we yeah. should go through the characters. Mm-hmm. Um and they're interesting things partly of how they play off each other, um, and also sometimes how they play into cliches or play off of cliches. So like pugs, uh just this cynical <laughs> pug was like, Okay, yeah, that we've seen that before. Uh but then you have the Doberman who's a coward, where Doberman are usually like the guard dogs. Uh huh. Or, or we'll race into danger.
0: Yeah, and I will say, um, looking through, there was a a sketchbook at the back of the the collection. It seems like artists like to draw pugs. <laughs> 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 like, uh, Mike Mignola had done uh, a a cover sketch. She had a couple versions of covers for the Hellboy, and like in all of them, uh, Hellboy was carrying pugs. <laughs> and that that was in the story too. We didn't get into the detail, yeah. but uh-huh. it was like
1: Hellboy kind of. Uh, develops a friendship with pugs and then sabina in the later story just you know she and pugs just get along mm-hmm. so there's this sense of yeah he's he seems really cynical but he just really needs a friend
0: yeah but i also wonder if like centering the you know pugs especially on the covers is part of it is like that's just an interesting animal face to draw um mm-hmm. and there's i mean we already mentioned that some of the other ones can kind of blend together but there's something distinct about drawing a pug yeah
1: like you will always recognize a pug mm-hmm. uh, whereas some of the other breeds is not there a like, space pug uh, like, book or something
0: a little while ago? Uh, battle pug. Battle pug. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's, it's something about pugs and comic book Yeah, and so with the, all the character dynamics, like you do, like with a group like this, you do need a cynical one. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not cynical of I don't believe that this stuff happens. They obviously do believe. Uh, you have the outsider, an orphan. You know, they've never had a cat be part of the society before. Mm-hmm. Ace, who Seems like a competent leader, but then can go into a rage because of
0: his lycanthropy. I love the, the idea of a, a dog that's been bit by a werewolf. Yes. <laughs> I um, think uh, if I'm remembering right in that one interview that I already read a quote from with Evan Dorkin, he mentioned that his plan had been for ACE to die. And it was his wife who said, mm, no, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually not the right tone you're looking for. And they settled on to give him into a werewolf, which has led yeah. to some interesting moments. It was, uh,
1: well, the story, I, in story was in the first volume, and uh, he played with that because the for the dogs they have a legend of the uh, black dog that comes for you when you die, mm-hmm. and so they have the scene um, where he's been injured and a black dog shows up, and then you turn the page and it finds out it's this re- uh, regular black dog from the society, but Ace was very wounded after that, and so mm-hmm. they show him inside all bandaged up with the cone around his neck.
0: Yeah and it's interesting the um like the humans in the story outside the last one like are generally unaware of what's going on they almost don't appear in yes. very few instances and when they do they almost become not um antagonists but like obstacles yes. <laughs> to to the dogs like they an owner is chaining up his dog because the dog has been out barking and the dog was out barking because it was chasing a goblin right? <laughs> or you know, whatever yes. it may be uh or or you know we, we want to go out but the dog's inside the house right now so and we can't go on patrol at the moment <laughs> you know things like that yeah <laughs> um which which I, I like i like that this is a story about the beasts of burden it's not the story about like a a dog and its owner um, or anything like that. It's just it's a- the, these are the dogs that have their own their own lives and their own adventures. They are parts of human families, uh, most of them. Uh, but that is something that is not so key to the story that we're going to spend much time on it. But it's also that uh, the owners are fine with several of
1: these dogs not being on leashes not mm-hmm. in the yard you know, they got, let them wander
0: around the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a little unclear. Like, is this rural or, or, or urban setting? <laughs> like in, it's, in some in some stories, it feels like it's just they're, they're wandering farmlands. And then others, it's like streets of suburbia uh, well, there, are, are right there.
1: There is a farm there. So mm-hmm. <laughs> there is that aspect. Um, but yeah. yeah, like you have the farm, you have the wild woods there. And so it's like a suburbia
0: that borders on nature. Mhm. And um I I I think that line, I mean that that works so well for horror stories, like traditionally, like this idea of of like the line between uh you know, quote-unquote civilization and quote-unquote the the frontier, you know, the mm-hmm. uh, the unknown. Um that that's or, a pretty common setting for these kinds of stories. Or taking something that should be normal
1: and adding this unsettling veneer that no something is wrong here of um uh, since, like, the 80s, suburbia has been one of those key locations where it's supposed to be normal, No, this idea of normal,
0: but, mm-hmm. you know, scratch beneath the surface and things are messed up underneath. Yeah, the idea that it's a, a facade or, like, there's a Potemkin village, like, there, there's a falseness um, mm-hmm. out there that's uh, – or something performative at, at the normalcy. Yes. Um, I like – Orphan, the 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 stray cat, and also Dymphna. I I think um, visually, it's fun to have the cats within the group of the dogs.
1: <laughs> well, also you get the hint of romance in the story, which is always a nice addition in these types of things.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, now, the orphan, it is called that because it's stray cat, so it's never been given a name, right? You know, they d- have never gone into why he's called orphan because there are other
1: stray cats in this town. And do they have names? Uh, uh yes. There's Swifty and I'm blanking on another one. There's one that actually has interacted with them a bit. Um but uh, yeah there are like three or four others. Uh and so in that last story they're the kids are called away when they find the rat, they're called away by the stray cats. Uh-huh. And something weird's going on.
0: And they go and investigate that. So I imagine, well, I mean, if, if there's one more set of volumes, we must find out more about Orphan. or <laughs> I would anticipate yeah, because we will. We have, like,
1: well, that's the thing is really we don't have backstories for these characters. You know, it's um one of the nice things was you're able to enter in so quickly into this world because it's like, okay, these are pets. Mm-hmm. I understand that. And yeah, okay. And they talk to each other. Okay. They're supernatural going on. Okay. like once you start accepting things like that, uh, it's real easy to get into the story world.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. We got a little bit of time left. Is there any, uh, any other seed from any of these stories that stood out to you that you want us to dig into a little bit?
1: Um, well, I will say another part of horror is that unseen master for the rats, mm-hmm. and the crows that, um, they talk about, but you know, you never see, it's just this unseen threat. And that's, uh, another, trope of horror that they're built into this effectively.
0: Yes. um, And I like um, story time, which is the one about the wise dog that tells a group of puppies (laughs) uh, about um, the basilisk. And you, we find out at the end that it really is almost using an urban legend or folklore to keep the kids in line. Um, It made me think about a, a Halloween special a few years ago, we were grabbing random, bits of folklore from around the world to kind of inspire some storytelling. And I found one called Jenny Greenteeth, I think Mm -hmm. is what her name was, which uh, a listener had mentioned that she had appeared in a Hellboy story, actually. Yes, Um, she has. But it is... A woman that lives on the uh riverbanks and tries to lure children in to drown her, and immediately like Todd Peterson and Todd Mac are like, well, okay, well, we know why that folklore exists is actually to keep to keep kids safe is um you know why this particular story, this scary story would be told, is to keep kids from wandering uh, into into on the riverbank, um, you know, where, where they may die. Yeah. And right. uh this is Presenting like a you know an animal version for beast of burden of uh, an urban legend that's going to f- follow the same or, or create the same function,
1: and it's a nice inversion of this trope of you still get the legend and it feels authentic, but uh since it's a dog telling it, we focus on the dog, not Auric. Who, if a human was telling it, that would be the hero. Um, when they talk about this battle with the basilisk, that's the center of the story and that our then defeated the wizard is almost an
0: afterthought. hmm Yes. And, um, there's also, I mean, I guess there is both the idea that this is just a story that they're telling you to stop the puppies from going into the woods. But also we do have like in the background, like there's the stone bunny rabbits in someone's yard. Yeah. It's, <laughs> a,
1: it's both a, a cautionary tale, but also trying to explain why something exists
0: in the world. It's one of those just so stories uh well it's it's why people would put those but also there's the the idea of like well are those bunnies that were turned into stone by a basilisk actually yeah <laughs> like there is that looming idea because we know there is so much that is supernatural in burden hill uh that it's like uh, operating on, on on multiple levels there for the reader yeah but yes it does kind of feel like the uh oh who did the just so stories it was um Rudyard kipling Yeah, Roger Kipling. uh, Kipling. Uh, The Just So stories were just brief explanations for why things are, basically. (laughs) Yes. Um, And so for for these kids, it's explaining why you find like little stone bunnies in some people's yards. Well, it's also the sense that um, the
1: society has history that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they've been protecting mankind as man's best friend for a very long time. And at one point, they fought with man, and now it's you know, we try and keep this hidden from man uh, mm-hmm. to not upset their sense of normalcy.
0: Yes. And I, I like that where it's not adding to the mythology of like the the rat master or whoever is behind the issue that they're having in Burning Hill. But it's adding to the mythology of what it means to be. Um, oh. The apprentices to the what's it called again the the society, the society or, yeah, or the wise dogs, which mm-hmm. whatever you're we're going at there, I do like the words wise dogs, like mm-hmm. that's just that's good writing um and then i I think the uh what's the the one about the food the uh, food, food run run yeah where this is i i want to say like one of the shorter ones it was probably one of those anthologies where there's the goblin that's stealing ticket uh chickens and we see the dogs trying to stop you know capture and kill the goblin and then we get the little twist at the end of the goblin was just trying to get dinner for his kids and wife back home (laughs) um basically and this um reminds me of something that i'm never sure how i feel about in in like buffy and angel do this occasionally where like they would tell a story That would try to, I mean, this is probably not the right word for it, but humanize the demons, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And meanwhile, in most other weeks, it's about how can we kill the demons? (laughs) And so uh, similarly, I'm like, "Mm, do I, like, it's a funny little twist. And most likely, I'm not supposed to think about it much more than the funny little twist. But we do also have almost every other story in, the, or mo- many of the other stories in this, are about how do we stop these demon monsters, <laughs> yeah. and and the first introduction of the goblin is definitely treated as though just another supernatural nuisance that must be killed.
1: I think that that's a uh, thing. There is it's a nuisance; it's not a threat per right. se.
0: Right, uh, but it- I mean they they are laying a trap and trying to hunt it down, uh, basically at the beginning. Yeah. Um. So, it's it's um. Well, it can be a funny little turn. I I always think there's a careful line to be tread when you're talking about supernatural, you know, threats that must be uh, vanquished to make them too relatable or sympathetic. Mm -hmm. And uh, the end reveal of this definitely gets a little chuckle. But then if, if you dwell on it, is it making monsters too relatable for what the purpose of the rest of these stories are? Yeah. That's a good point. Um, I still remember like there's uh, one angel episode where there was uh, a demon fighting ring, essentially like uh, someone who was creating like gladiator, gladiator combat. And they, like the twist is like the humans are the monsters. The humans that are doing this to the demons um, are the monsters. And in the end, you know, angel and his and his buddies, uh, you know, are, are able to free all the demons that have been trapped and forced to fight each other. And then the last shot is the demons walking away. And then one of the, the humans that helps angel says so like, uh, how many of those are just the monsters that we need to that we kill every other week and then the, they give each other a look and then it cuts to black at the end of the episode but it's kind of like there's a point there <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> like that most other weeks you're stopping the exact kinds of demons that you just released because they are killing humans <laughs> and in that world so much had been built up to create this hierarchy where we were okay with the violence being enacted against demons because they were uh evil uh often mindless um uh threats and and violent and all these other things um and you have a storyline in this one episode that kind of like makes them the victims and humanizes them in a lot of ways, but then that kind of disrupts the whole premise that the whole series can stand on and at least they acknowledged that. <laughs> Yes, but they didn't really resolve it. <laughs> no, but at least they acknowledged it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. Well, John, do you have any other thoughts about Beasts of Burden? Um. I have a separate thing. Okay. That's relate- related to Beasts
1: of Burdens, and I don't know if we call this if you recall this, Joseph, but we do have a family ghost story.
0: Uh. Oh. Our our, our dog Bogie.
1: Yes. So many years ago, we had a black Shih Tzu named Bogie. Short for Bogart, and I'm one from time Bogart the dog. If you're mm-hmm. wondering, there, one time, uh, cousin Annie was coming into town, um, with her family, and but we weren't sure when she would would arrive, so we were actually at another house having uh, probably a birthday celebration. So, so I, were you, were you in you Utah? That because I was living in Michigan when this happened. So I think I've only ever heard it secondhand. Um, I I recall being there. But even okay. then, I would be hearing the uh, the specifics of the second hand. So, okay, yeah, I guess I, guess as I'm I will now too.
0: I'm usually hearing this like third or
1: fourth hand. I yeah. guess. <laughs> so, um, since Annie didn't know we were elsewhere, she went to our our house first, and then came uh got in contact and came over, and she said when she got to the other house, she said, "Uh, yeah, when we got to your house, uh, we went inside, and this black dog came into the foyer and looked at us, and then ran off." Uh, And then we realized no one was there and called you and found where you were. And there were three curious things about that statement. First is that the house was unlocked. Now we lived in a very safe neighborhood. Um, There, there would be no problem with that, but generally with everyone was out of the house, we'd lock the doors. So we must've forgotten that time. Uh, Second, if Bogie was in the house, he would be on a leash. We also had two cats at the time and this was less that we were worried about Bogey chasing the cats than we were worried about the cats bullying Bogey. <laughs> and the third curious thing is that Bogey had died weeks before.
0: Yes. And uh, the dog was in the house, according to Cousin Eddie. Yes. And, uh, and that is strange because yes. we, we don't have, like, neighborhood dogs that roam around or anything like that. Uh, no. You know, in, back in that neighborhood. So, and we didn't have like we didn't have a doggy doors that a neighborhood
1: dog could have gotten in anyway.
0: Yes. And she described again, I I wasn't there, Mm -hmm. but I've heard that she described the dog when everyone was confused and it it sounded just like bogey. Yes. My dog Luna now looks a little like bogey. They're different, different (laughs) breeds, but there's Um, definitely a visual um, similarity there.
1: Bigger, but yes, your dog Mm -hmm. Luna does look a bit like bogey
0: uh that, yeah I, and uh i i think supernatural with with animals is a fun avenue to go explore and so i understand for evan Dorgan why like the thought of like a uh, haunted house story for this dark horse presents hauntings or, or whatever the title of that first anthology was i understand that impulse but then to have that kind of say well i'm gonna put a twist on it so it's gonna be a haunted dog house and then end up with beast of burden, with all of this mythology about the apprentices and the wise dogs and the witches familiar and you know the master of the rats <laughs> that is this lurking antagonist and all the other things that they've they've built on it that comes from that one seed of kind of haunted doghouse and then eventually like the pun of beast of burden, beast of burden hill, <laughs> uh, like like it's it's so much has come from that and that, that's why. Like the the brainstorm session, it's a game we play of like elevator pitch on the podcast. It's like sometimes that brainstorm session is really just about like finding something that you get a handle on. And from there, so much more can be can be layered on and built on. Yeah. Um, and I, I like the idea that Haunted Doghouse leads to uh, this comic books, um, you know, series that's been running again, not not regularly or uh, monthly or anything, but has been going for almost 20 years now. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's pretty cool. All right. That is going to wrap up this episode. Listeners, thank you for downloading this episode. For uh, show notes and links, uh, you can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofti who proposed our theme music uh, thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Opposite problem a couple weeks ago where okay. I was not seeing any waveforms. But Andrew was hearing me fine. And he's like, nah, eh, just carry on. And it seemed to have worked out fine. Yeah.